you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it is an absolute pleasure to have on the show today the fabulous Kieran Flanagan and Dan Gregory. Uh, Dan and Kieran are co-founders of the Impossible Institute. This is a strategic think tank, uh, primarily founded to reimagine how we think, the way we think, the way we lead and navigate, and how we actually create success. Kieran herself works with leaders, teams, and organizations to make positive change and make change positive, while Dan helps smart people to become people smart. They're also authors of a brand new book called Forever Skills, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And before this, um, these guys have got such an incredible amount of experience of helping entrepreneurs, Uh, build internationally successful businesses, and they've also worked with some of the world's most influential organizations, developing communication and marketing strategies for brands like Coca-Cola, Unilever, the Australian Navy, banks throughout Asia, as well as building team-working global tech giants and C-suite executives in the US. And if that wasn't enough, um, they have been voted in the top 25 C-suite speakers to watch. Uh, They combine business acumen with wit and a rare human insight that has been gained whilst working in the U.S., um, here in Australia, throughout Asia. And Dan has also spent a lot of time in the U.K. doing the stand-up comedy circuits. So they have a wealth of experience, a wealth of insight, an incredible amount of knowledge, which they have pulled together in their latest book, Forever Skills. Welcome to the show, Kieran and Dan. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. That was such it's a massive like, bio. I, I feel like saying, and that's all we've got time for. Good night. I know. I know. I'm like, is there anything that you haven't put on here that we need to know? <laughs> Probably, but yeah. <laughs> I dare you. Now let's let's just jump straight into it. Um, how did you two meet? Because you've worked together for a long time, haven't you? Uh, yeah, but longer than most marriages, apparently. <laughs> We have, yeah. It's been uh, been over twenty five years now. So, um, and, and I mean, we're still finding stuff about each other that annoys the other one. So, you know, I think there's there's still stuff to be discovered. <laughs> um, well, isn't that the secret of a good marriage? That's what they say. But we're not actually it? married for people who, I who know. don't know that information, Janine. But people often assume that we are. We actually often have to open our keynote speeches and let the audience know that we're business partners, not life partners. So what that means is she bosses me around, we complete each other's sentences, and we don't have sex. So it's like being married for over 25 years. <laughs> so why do you think it works? You know, there's a lot of uh, partnerships in business that don't last the 25 years. There's a lot of people that, that have worked together or try and work together for this period of time. Why do you think it lasts? What is it about the two of you that works so awesomely together? I think there's a there's a few things. Um, I, I think we're... We're archetypally very different, and I think that's really useful. I mean, it's again, it's the differences that are often the source of any conflict you have, but it's also the, the the source of the richness that you provide. You know, you have strengths where the other one has weaknesses, and vice versa. So, I think that's I think that's a big part of it. 
Yeah, and I think we both appreciate what the other person brings to the table and uh, we don't try to be the same, which I think is a really helpful mindset. Often we hire or work with like-minded people and that's not necessarily the best strategy for getting the best result. Now, before we uh, we get on to talking about the book, there's obviously been years of working with brands, building brands, coming up with incredible uh, new campaigns or in- innovative ways to go to market. And I'm imagining there were things through that process that, that led to the formulation of the need for this book. What What is it that you've seen over the years that, that organisations or brands are increasingly being challenged with? I would say that it is a need for being better at change. So people think we should be good at change and because it's something we all face and it happens naturally to ourselves as we get older and we live in a world of it. But we constantly were in the business of asking, uh, being asked to change people's minds, to be asked to change people's perspective on things, and it led us to become really obsessed with change. And what we realised is that human beings don't do change very well. We we say we're good at change and, you know, we pretend to actually like change, but really most of us would rather things stay the same. So we just saw this massive need to help people with change essentially and how to do it better hence the book i think the other thing is you know we we both spend a lot of time on the professional speaking circuit so we see a lot of economists and and futurists get up on stage and essentially scare the crap out of their audiences with you know robots are going to take your job you're going to be replaced with ai and then they drop the mic and walk away without any sense of well what do i do with that information and i think what we wanted to do was to to say okay yeah there is change coming um, but here's a bunch of things that we can do about it and how can we reframe the way people look at change so they feel a greater sense of confidence and certainty about their own abilities to, to you know, work with it and, and prepare for it. Uh, that's what that's what I loved about reading this book is that um, you know, in many of the organisations I, I work in or the leaders I speak to, there is this uh, almost unconscious fear that's being created around the speed with which things are moving mm. and the uncertainty that's ahead and the need to innovate and the need to be move fast and speed to market, et cetera, et cetera. And people are exhausted with trying to work out what their relevance is in it or their place in it. Do, did you find that through your your research that there is this sort of underlying uncertainty about, as you said, Dan, okay, what does this mean for me? Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's a great deal of uncertainty around change. You know, as Kieran said, that you know we talk about change. We you know we have these these twee cliches. You know, change is as good as a holiday, but no one really means that. We we the only change we tend to have a positive reaction to is change that we're trying to initiate ourselves. And I think what we found in our research is that our our focus on change or the way we perceive change is is way too narrow. Where we're mostly focused on on trends and technology and you know change has a, has a much bigger remit than than just those you know that very narrow, narrow focus I love that concept of change is much better bigger sorry than than technology what what sort of things are, are you seeing then that that people need to start considering outside of the the threat of technology or data or ai etc well, one, one of the key 
parts of the book and I guess where we begin is in a change model that we use a lot when we're working with teams and organizations helping them through change and and it's a it's a model that says you know we need to look at change from more than one lens and typically Dan's right the lens that we use is the lens of what's changing it's all about trends and technology and shifts and and it induces panic it, it makes you feel behind all the time and people don't don't necessarily make good decisions for, you know, they just jump in often. And sometimes we need to. It's a really useful sphere. It's why people spend a lot of time there. It's a useful lens in which to see the world and you need to stay at top of it. But what we forget is that there's these two other important and crucial lenses and that's what needs changing which is how do you proactively change the things in your world or the world that need changing? How do you take on? Entrepreneurs uh, tend to spend a lot of time here. They're they're naturally sort of hang out in that that lens and they're good at it. And occasionally, you know, big organisations will dabble in it and they go, we need to do some innovation. But it's a really critical uh, lens to keep on all the time. And the third that probably gets no attention is what's unchanging. You know, what are the things worth keeping or that have been around since the dawn of time and will continue to be till, you know, as long as there's human beings on the planet? And that's where the book essentially focuses. What is unchanging? What's going to stay? Because we know that a lot of change programs fail because uh, of a failure to link things to the familiar. So we wanted to have people just take a breath stop panicking and start to start to see things from the lens as well as the other two but importantly what will stay and what will always be part of our lives and workplaces this is really fascinating so from your perspective so one of the things I'd I'd love our our listeners to just get a get a feel for is this isn't just Kieran and Dan's idea around what the forever skills are you've actually spent a lot of years and a lot of research and study pulling together and identifying these skills haven't you give us a little bit more information about who you've spoken to and how you've you've developed this this concept of the forever skills well i think one of the one of the richest parts of our of our experience is there's almost not a uh, an industry or category that we haven't worked with over the past 25 years and you know one of the great things is we've got this enormous network that stretches all around the world and we really wanted to rather than just just looking quite um you know myopically at what you know what skills were going to matter in the future we thought well actually let's let's look for patterns um across across all time because you know as the, the the concept of of forever skills really means that, well, these must be skills that have always been useful, that are skills that are in demand today, and the skills that, you know, futurists and economists are going to, um, are suggesting are going to be important going forward as well. So we actually had a look across history, across different cultures, and and had a look for, you know, all of those successful cultures, what were the skills that were always required, um, and then and then compared that to what's, what's happening today and, and what's being predicted to to matter in the future. So we looked across categories, we looked across cultures, we looked across different epochs um, and across different industrial revolutions. And, you know, over those, you know, there were over 100, you know, um, qual interviews, but there was also a lot of surveys where we we spoke to hundreds of people and and, and got surveys and, and, and answers and got sort of a, 
a big picture of what this change was going to look like and, and what skills were going to be evergreen. So it gave us um, a, a really broad overview and then we looked for, well, what are the patterns? What are the things that are that may change in their natures but will always be useful? Oh, fabulous. So tell us, tell us what, what is unchanging. I'm curious. What, from your perspective, are the, <laughs> the skills that we all need to actually embrace and and work on to ensure we continue to to do our work as effectively as we can well we and for simplicity and the ability to transfer the the concepts easily uh one of the forever skills we learned along the way was uh we broke them into three big bucket categories so it's probably easier to start with those initially so people get a sense of them and the first the the first bucket's creativity skills the second bucket was communication skills and the third bucket was control skills and creativity skills you know it's really important and one of the things I talk about a lot with organisations and on stage is that creativity skills aren't artistic skills. And most people are really confused about creativity. So we ask people a lot, you know, I say hands up who in the room thinks they're creative. And in the average uh, room of a few hundred people at a conference, you know, 300 to 2,000 people, you're lucky to get five percent of the audience put their hands up and most people because they are confused about creativity so they think it's an ability to draw and it's actually an ability to think so these are thinking skills they're problem solving skills they're things like insight you know can you can you understand and sort of make meaning out of stuff uh conversion can you turn something into another thing Uh, can you solve problems and can you be mentally agile uh, and then the second bucket, communication skills, obviously, hugely critical throughout history. <laughs> Great communication skills uh, have always mattered. And they're things like influence, team building, trust and translation. And our third bucket was control skills. So can you essentially control your, to an extent, your environment, yourself, um, the resources you have to manage? Uh, and can you get stuff done? That they came up time and time again, you know, can you implement and make stuff happen? So we could talk more about those skills, but that's a short rundown of the buckets and the, the skills. Yeah, let's, let's, why don't we take each bucket? Um, so let's start with the creativity skills. I noticed within your book, you've also identified that um, in the Future of Jobs report, this uh, skill has in the last five years jumped from being the tenth most needed skill to the to the second, uh, or up at, sorry, the third most needed skill. So in five years, we've seen a increase in demand for the need of critical thinking and complex problem solvings up there too. Why why do you think it's so important that that people develop this skill? And what tips or ideas have you got of how people can actually enhance? their creativity skills um, moving into tomorrow. <laughs> I was letting Kieran answer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just figured I'd talk so much in the last one that you'd do it. So this is teamwork, right? I was like, Kieran spoke <laughs> for a long time. She'll let Dan do it. Even though creativity is more of my bucket. So <laughs> that's why he was going, Kay, you should do this one. But, oh the, God, you know, you I've asked been, about teamwork before. So I've been I waiting 25 that. years for my chance to talk and it finally arrived and I wasn't ready. <laughs> 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 you weren't ready. Got you trained. Damn. <laughs> 
so I'm, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> and then Dan wants to do communication. Yeah, uh, So creative. So can I've forgotten the question after all of that. So creativity skills and problem solving, et cetera, have obviously increased in demand. They're top of the future of skills report. Why do you think it's shifted so much in a short time of five years? And secondly, what tips, ideas, suggestions have you got for our listeners of how they can improve their creativity skills? So, you know, look, I think it's hardly surprising given the world we live in that they've jumped so much. Uh, So not only are we seeing uh, an increase in complexity, so, you know, problems aren't as easy as they were to solve once upon a time. They're easy problems. A lot of them are being dealt with. So we're, we're dealing with more complicated problems. We're dealing with an incredible rate of change. And we're also dealing with a lot of AI doing a lot of the repetitive tasks. And we know that's only going to increase from all our futurists of friends. So we always say if you can if you can replicate it, they'll automate it. And we like to play a game, can a robot do your job? Uh, and it's a fun game to play. And, you know, what we've found is it's a creative skills that are the skills that a robot can't do yet. And they increasingly help people uh, to deal with things they haven't dealt with before, so things that come up in new iterations and to problem solve with speed and to be better at thinking in general. And that's what people want to pay for today. We need thinking. And it's one of the reasons things like coding, right, all the parents out there, everybody's obsessing with, you know, can our kids code? And we, look, coding's obviously a useful skill, but the reality is it's probably it's more about the process of learning if you think what coding is simply it's can i simplify and sequence can i simplify information down to steps and sequence it in a way to get a result recipes are essentially coding from way back in time so the language of coding may change and we may not be using the same sort of software and things that we're doing, but the essential skill will stay the same. So I think it's really important and and in these buckets of understanding, that's what we're saying. And one of the skills in creativity was conversion and it was can you turn something into something else? And what we found talking to a whole lot of people, so we t- interviewed a lot of people and we asked them what were the things you most relied on in your career for success what do you think's made the difference between you being a competent professional and you know I guess becoming a leader and it was amazing that creativity skills this ability to see nothing as waste mm. came up time and time again you know um, Stephen Kukalis uh, who's an economist he said you know stacking shelves can teach you about efficiency if you put a creative hat on so if you do a task and you are consciously going, how can I learn from this and reapply it to something else? What's the transferable part of this? You never waste your time again. And I think it's a really good, you know, what can I create out of this that's useful is a really good tip for people. Is like, how do you start to be more creative? And it's it's not just, as I said, it's not do an art class. It's how do you apply a head space that says, What can I take from this and reapply somewhere else? It's incredibly useful. So that would be my first tip. Is that the the concept around you talk about creating, generating unexpected collisions? Does that relate to that? 
Yeah, it does. So what we found in in problem solving, so a lot of people think, again, creativity is random. So we use language like, oh, it was a flash of inspiration and a moment of genius and the muse muse struck and things like that. But creativity really often is I saw something over here and something over here and I put them together in a way no one's ever seen before. And that becomes really crucial. And so the more broad your input is, the more you can have a headspace of what can I mix this with to create something unique and solve a problem in a way I haven't seen before, uh, the more you'll be able to be creative. And it's not, you know, it's not random, you're born with it or you're not. It's actually, you know, how widely read are you? How interest, broadly interested are you? How able are you to reimagine and convert things between fields and and places and things? And I think the other thing is it's, so a, cool. it's a commercial application of, of what, you know, if you think about what Carol Dweck talks about in terms of growth mindset, most of those characteristics of growth mindset are actually, cre- you know, creative skills and they're, they're sort of the mindset that, that creative people have always had. You know, can you embrace a challenge? Can you persist in the face of roadblocks? In other words, can you come up with, if one solution shuts down, can you create a new solution? You know, and this idea that can you see effort as a road to mastery, all of those things that Carol Dweck talks about in growth mindset, they're actually creativity skills. And the the interesting thing that I think Kieran's alluded to is there's been a People in the creative industries have always cultivated this. And if you think about people like IDEO in San Francisco and their design thinking methodology that's sort of been amplified through D-School at Stanford, all of those skills that the creative industry has spent the past 50-odd years cultivating, all of a sudden those skills are now applicable to mainstream corporate. And we spent the past 50 years shutting down creativity in mainstream corporate, but all of a sudden they're, they're having to re- re-engineer and, and re-engage with those skills that they've probably shut down in themselves as, as a result of building themselves for what the 1980s required, not what the 21st century required. And I can see now that if people develop those creativity skills in terms of insight and the ability to converse, convert things or thinking and problem solve, et cetera, why then it seems quite natural that your ability to communicate and influence is, is the next lot of forever skills. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's one of those those things that we always talk about with leaders. Leaders need to be able to engage people they need to be able to create influence and persuade and 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 build a sense of engagement around their vision and it's also been one of those skills that's always been important if you if you go back to history some of the great uh, the great roman emperors if you have a look at and and generals you know you look at julius caesar you look at cicero you look at any great leader throughout history martin luther king um, uh, john f kennedy a capacity to communicate in a way that you created a sense of of influence and had people buy into your vision in a way that they also sort of anchored in themselves as, as a sense of identity and a cultural identity. So they built a sense of shared um, morals and ethics and, you know, you built a team around this, this central vision. And, and those are really important skills and those are skills that have always mattered in terms of leadership. 
but they're becoming more and more important to people at any level of of, of engagement. Oh, we're all in the in the business of of human behavior and influence. If you're a if you're a leader, you're selling your vision. If you're a, a business person or if you're a salesperson, you're you're selling products and services. And if you're a parent, you're just selling bedtime and broccoli. We're all playing some kind of an influence game, and I think our capacity to generate those communication skills has been less important during the first industrial revolution where it was working in a very mechanical way. But today where we spend most of our time working with other people and building teams across uh, different communities, different countries, different languages, different cultures, and oftentimes where the people who work with us may not always work for us, at that point an ability to build trust and to translate information from one context to another, all of those communication skills start to take on a greater level of significance. They've always mattered, but they're, they're just starting to matter a little bit more. And this trust piece is, is interesting right now, isn't it? I mean, everything you, we're reading is, is indicating that trust is being challenged in terms of brands or leaders or governments, et cetera. What, what fundamentally do people need to do to build trust? Because it's more than just sharing an idea. Yeah, there's, and, and the, the interesting thing about trust is trust is really one of those core building blocks that allowed human beings to go from small familial clans to build societies. You know, society only works if you can create a sense of trust and accountability. So people's reputations matter. And if you and if you rip people off or or you cheat people or you behave in an unethical way, the societies have built punitive measures to pull people back into line. So trust has always mattered. But you're right, we've got this this increasing distrust in institutions, in governments, in religions, in in business. And some of that's been generated by, you know, social media, which has allowed anyone with an opinion to amplify that opinion in a way that it couldn't be before. And the rise of, you know, uh, things like fake news, things like the, you know, the Banking Royal Commission, anything where you see, uh, you know, the Catholic Church being dragged over the coals for child abuse, all of those things where you see institutional trust being undermined. It's actually really important. A lot, of, a lot of that conversation really matters. However, what it does is it destabilizes some of that social glue that holds us together, and that and that makes it much more important. So, how do we how do we build trust? I think there's there's a bunch of things. I think you need to firstly acknowledge people's intuition, and and say that actually, no, you're right to be cynical. There's plenty to be cynical about today. And then I think you've you've got to get good at at telling the inconvenient truth. One of the things that Kieran and I found uh, across our career was whether we were real, rebuilding a brand or helping a leader uh, reestablish trust within a team or within a community, is that when you tell that when you tell a, a a truth that serves you, people are automatically suspicious. But when you tell an inconvenient truth, in other words, when you tell a truth that puts you uh, at risk in some way. In other words, it makes you vulnerable. That's when trust ensues because people start to think, well, if they're being honest about a truth that makes them vulnerable, they're far more likely to tell the truth about anything. So I think that's one of the, the critical things we learned about how do you how do you build a sense of trust. Have you got a specific example that you can share uh, for people that are listening? Yeah, we definitely do. So I guess one of the things we worked on in our time was the relaunch of Mother Energy Drink for Coca-Cola. And th 
For various reasons, Coke had actually launched Mother as a brand into the marketplace and it was an incredible failure. Well, in a weird way it was successful, right, because they had an incredible volume of trials. So I don't, it was in the 90, early 90s. Uh, Dan might remember the exact number. He's pretty good on the exact numbers. Don't what test was it, me on that. 92% or something, and they had yeah, about they... 97% rejection. So more people rejected it because, you know, word had spread and everyone said it's horrible, don't bother. So that, so in their target market, everybody knew about it and everybody hated it. And now for various reasons within Coca-Cola that I won't go into because that would break their trust, uh, that we had to relaunch the brand. They needed it to be a success. So they came to us and they said, look, we've reformulated it. It now tastes like an energy drink people expect it to so it tastes like that but can you uh, go out and tell people that it now tastes better and can you tell them it's got lots of energy which is a reasonably generic energy drink promise so we did the work they expected because again they trusted us to do that and we presented all of that work and it was good work and it would have done the job but we said to them here's the problem you know we we actually have a bigger issue than the taste of the drink we've sort of lost people's belief in the drink and we need to fix it and in any relationship when you do something wrong you make good and you apologize and you own your mistake so we need to own our mistake if we want to rebuild trust with our target market, we actually need to fess up and own our mistake. And we called it the mother of all fuck-ups. And so you've got to imagine that we're presenting work to a large part of the marketing team for Coke who'd originally launched a product that essentially was a dog in the marketplace and saying our strategy is for you to apologise and say, hey, we screwed up, we're really sorry and we're going to take over the top because we're an over-the-top product, we're going to take over-the-top action and beat up the people who were stupid enough to actually launch this drink. So what we did was have a SWAT team come in and beat up uh, the creators of the original mother in, uh, and apologise to the marketplace. And we put things on the on the product itself, like taste nothing like the old one. We had tanks drive over the product, old product and squash it. Anything we could do to say we're really sorry – and this is nothing like the original. And, and I think one that? of the one of the things that made that really important was was letting the the marketplace speak and acknowledging that they had a had a problem. I think one, that's one of the things that's critical in trust is giving people a, a chance to voice their concerns, and then you know, as Kieran said, respond to those concerns. Because oftentimes you see people go straight into PR mode without letting the the marketplace or the team or the, or the individual that you're, you're trying to rebuild trust with have a voice and, and actually say what's on their minds and what's bothering them and why they feel like they've lost their trust. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I love that concept of uh, the vulnerability within it, which is quite interesting because uh, I'm sure many of our Australian listeners have recently seen Brené Brown talk and she talks a lot about this, this need for vulnerability is actually one of the first steps in building trust and in, in building leadership. Um, now, I'm really curious, control skills you mentioned was that final bucket Um which is which is an interesting description using that word control. So I'm curious, what's what's in this bucket for, of forever skills? <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it's it's a it's a funny word, and it's a word I think we um, we debated for a long time. But I think in the end we chose control partly because it gave us a nice three C alliteration, but it also spoke to 
various applications within this this bucket of skills. So there was things like self-control, resource management, how do you establish social order or, or, or conventions around behaviour, and things like you know, implementation. And interestingly for Kieran and I, I, I think this is probably the, the bucket of skills that we found most challenging. Um, and I think it's a bucket of skills that a lot of people find challenging. Can you have a sense of self-control? Can you delay gratification? Can you exhibit appropriate discipline? Can you motivate yourself to take action? Can you, can you motivate your team? I think those are challenges that are that are quite universal to individuals and leaders. Uh, and I think it's one of those one of those buckets that that we found quite challenging, uh, which was actually one of the really interesting things about doing doing the work was actually looking for um, well what part of the forever skills are, are going to be personally useful to to us in our work that we do and to us as as individuals and, and business advisors. Karen, mm. have you got anything else to add to that? I, look, yeah, I mean, I I agree with Dan. Control for us personally was the most interesting. But but having said that, it, they were very consistent for people. So things, you know, self-control, everybody we interviewed uh, who had success in their field was able to control their, their thoughts, emotions, uh, distractions enough uh, to stay, you know, to progress forward. Uh, interesting resource management came up a lot and what we've realised is everything's finite and, well, most things are finite and our ability to handle finance carefully and to make the most of what we have was also an absolutely essential skill. So whether it was time, money, energy. We told a story of a mutual friend of ours in there called Lisa O'Neill and I love this story. She told us this story of, she's a conference speaker as well, of a client upping the numbers in the audience and when they said to her, oh, we've moved it from, I can't remember, 400 to 600 or something, she said, it'll cost you more. And they said, what do you mean it'll cost us more? And she said, well, I don't work in time. It's the same number of people for the same time. She said, I don't work in time. I work in energy. And you've put way more people in the room and it will take a whole lot more energy. And I think it's really, I mean, it's funny and it's really true, but we don't necessarily see things that way. Uh, so it's a really different perspective to say your energy and your ability to show up with enthusiasm and to, you know, engage other people with that energy is absolutely crucial. So resource management in all its sort of spaces became really important. And then social order, obviously, hugely important. Can we reach cultural consensus? You know, who says what behaviours are appropriate? How do we, whether it's, you know, the planet, a country, our organisations, you know, we, we actually need order and we need some agreement of, of contracts of behaviour. And the final one that, you know, I guess... Any people say to you, how do you get a book written? They'll probably say it to you. How do you get anything done? How do you do that? Implementation was so important to all of these people, the ability to make stuff happen. And we heard some just extraordinary stories from all kinds of people about, you know, that that big difference for human beings is did I get something done that was worthwhile? You know, the difference between an idea and it being in the world was fundamental and it will always be you know I'm sure there were people throughout history that aren't in history books that are completely forgotten that had extraordinary ideas that didn't implement them 
And that's why we finished on implementation because it was just that such a beautiful reminder that you just got to try to make things happen and you have to have a go and you have to get things done. And it's, you know, today more than ever, I think we're so challenged with, you know, just distractions on hand. You know, it's so easy to lose yourself in a game of Candy Crush or, you know, a series of The Bachelor or, and there's nothing wrong with that provided you're still getting things done. So implementation was There's totally something wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know I think it's you know people often it's I was just at a cafe sitting doing some writing and the guy next to me was sitting writing and he was writing a book as well and I said oh how's the book going and he he said I was going really well I said how long have you been working on it he said oh almost three years now and I said oh well Kieran and my books just come out and he said well when how long did it take you to write and I said, well, we did about a year's research and then we wrote it in about two months. And he said, how did you write the book in two months? I said, we had a deadline. And I said, oh. do you have a deadline? And he said, no. And I said, yeah, that's, that's where your three years has gone. And I think that yeah. being able to, one of the things that Kieran and I talk about a lot is, is how do you hack human nature? So rather than beating yourself up uh, or artificially revving yourself up, be be a little bit conscious of of who you really are and how you behave and then engineer for that assume that you will have a bad day assume that you might fight with your spouse or you might have a sick child at home or or something will go wrong and something will come up and get in the way so make sure that you design for success rather than just expecting success to show up so i think implementation is is yes absolutely about how do you how do you pull the trigger and execute and get stuff into the market and get your ideas out there but i think it's also about understanding who you are and building a system for yourself that allows you to be successful the funny thing was we've we've done finished the audiobook after we not so long back and we've been recording the book and I know you've had this experience Janine and it's quite interesting to go back and you know verbalize what you wrote because you don't necessarily do it uh, verbally you tend to write it on paper so that's interesting for a start but the sound engineer (laughs) was so motivated by the implementation chapter he said he just we had a very long conversation about a project he'd had on for years that he hadn't got done. And he said, what can I do to make it happen? I need help. And uh, we said, you know, set up a deadline, set up a meeting where you're going to pitch the idea to someone and you're just going to have to get it done. So what was fun was just even the reading of the book that some of this thinking transferred. And I think overarching the book, and we didn't make it a skill, but there was this sort of overarching skill for people to think about, which was, this idea that you're always going to be learning, you know, forever skills aren't set, you're not set, and that people that do well in life and always have tend to have a really an ability to see not a full stop. They go, well, I'm just going to keep learning and adding on to things. And that we really distinguished, I guess, skills of the age. What's important is this isn't a book about what do you need to know right now 
in the sense of these are cutting-edge skills in technology or something. These are about what we'll see through no matter what technology changes or what changes around us. So, you know, obviously riding a horse, for example, was once upon a time a really important skill of the age in the same way that being technologically uh, literate today is really important. So we wanted to do a book. They go, there's plenty of great books with skills of the age, but we wanted a book about what are the skills of every age that will be really useful. I love that. I'm, um, I mean, the cut, there's a sentence that you've put in your conclusion, which I, I really love. It says, uh, change is just how the system is meant to work. We need to simply deal with it. And I think, you know, that is, that is one of the things that is consistent, that change is never not there. And it's how we deal with it using these three buckets of skills, which are all absolutely uh, related, the control, the creativity and the communication are all related and how quickly they move together essentially is how um, you manage to operate better in the current system. Um, to close, um, I would love to hear from you if there was one simple message that you could leave our listeners um, around this thinking that, yes, there's a lot changing and there's things that need to change. But in uncertainty, there is also a significant amount of things that are unchanging. Um, what's the one key message you'd, you'd like to leave, in both of you, for our listeners about how uh, they can continue to, to be relevant, to be influential, to get their ideas out to market, to do work that they love using the thinking within this awesome book, Forever Skills? Okay, well, I'll, I'll kick off, cake and give you a bit more time to think. Um because I've, I've got an answer I prepared earlier. Uh, I think that... Um, <laughs> See, did I you hear that... the smug? Just want to no, point no, out, no. everybody, there was smug in that. <laughs> and yeah. Janine didn't prep us with questions, so I'm not sure that's a good use of time, but anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the only people who should be humble are people who should be humble. Uh, I think... <laughs> you um... too. This is why they've worked together for 25 years, everyone. <laughs> I think that the most important thing, one of, one of the things I talk about a lot is I think one of the big mistakes we make in trying to lift our performance either personally or, or organisationally is we, we spend a lot of time telling people to play to their strengths and I think it's I think it's really generic and not particularly helpful advice. You, you don't need to tell people to play to their strengths. We naturally bias towards our strengths but the truth is the greatest opportunity for an uplift in our performance lies in our weaknesses. Can you make your weakness an asset? Because you might have a couple of percentage available uh, of improvement um, in your strengths, but you might have a huge amount of improvement available in your weakness. So if you can lift your weakness, you actually make a bit uh, a, a bigger uh, difference in your overall performance. So, for instance, if you're a sprinter and you're good at running but terrible at coming out of the blocks, work on coming out of the blocks because that's where the performance is going to come from. So I think... Rather than playing to your strengths, I would my advice to people would be to work your weakness. So I would look at the, the the forever skills and say, okay, these are always going to be valuable. Obviously, I'll have strengths in some of those, but I'd look for what were the most critical weaknesses, or where where did you have the most breakage points in your own, you know, professional life or your performance? And those are the forever skills I'd start with because I think those are the things that make the biggest difference. And certainly in in terms of the professional success I've had when when I was in my early twenties, you know, when Kieran and I first started working together, my fundamental weakness was presentation skills. Like I was, I was the world's worst presenter, 
and yet I now travel the world and speak to thousands of people in rooms every other day. So or by turning my, my weakness into an asset, I actually got to experience the greatest uh, impact in terms of, of, of performance change. So that's, I think that's the advice I'd give people on how to approach the forever skills. Mm, that's great, Dan. Kieran, have you had a chance to? <laughs> well, perhaps I was already ready, but uh, Dan, <laughs> Dan always presumes the worst of me. But it's potentially a clever <laughs> strategy. Uh, for me, it's don't forget the human beings. So I think it's really easy in a world of tech and it's a wonderful world of technology that we have at our disposal. It's never been easier to start a business or to get an idea sort of transmitted around the planet. We have this extraordinary age of opportunity, yet it's easy in that age to forget, I guess, the fundamental human things. And I think this book really taught us that. You know, we didn't set out with a list. We didn't write to fulfill our opinion of what these skills would be. We wrote, we actually wrote a guest list and went, it'll be really interesting as we go. And we interviewed a whole lot of people and spent time with them. And what we discovered is that all of the skills were essentially what we call soft skills. Nobody nobody said it was a technical ability that made all the difference in the world to my success. And at some point, the technical ability became just a little generic in their field. They were like, oh, of course, everybody's good at it at some point. You can learn up to a point. But the thing that distinguished them, the thing that made the difference, the thing that elevated and changed things was fundamentally human skills. And the book is full of humanity. It's full of the skills. It says people will be people. And, you know, even with robots doing a lot of repetitive work, your ability to connect with people, to communicate with them, your ability to create things that people want to solve problems that people have and your ability to, you know, get on top of your own emotions and humanity and and make progress and get things done will fundamentally set you up for success no matter what environment you find yourself in. So, yeah, I would say just remember that because it's easy to panic. And it's, it's a book for parents as well. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a mom and so many parents are in panic about what kind of workforce their kids will enter. And it's just saying to all of us, don't forget what will continually matter. And it's, it's those human skills that will make all the difference between success and failure. And that's what I love about this book is, uh, as you both know, I'm passionate about the connection piece and humanity and when people actually connect better they can do incredible things and um, it's certainly what I'm seeing throughout organizations at no matter what level those individuals that are able to connect as human beings are the ones that actually are able to influence more uh, to drive change and actually tend to enjoy what they're doing so much more than those that aren't. Kieran and Dan, um, it's such a joy to have you in my world. Um, forever friends indeed. Um, the, the, the tips that you have shared in this book, everybody should read, um, if not to alleviate any fear of the future and most importantly to realise that everybody has the skills they need if they focus on them and, and work on developing those areas of weakness as well as enhancing those strengths. So if you're wanting to find out a little bit more about the forever skills in the areas of creativity, 
communication skills and control skills. Where can people get a copy of your book and how can they find out more about you and what you do? Uh, the easiest way is to go to theimpossibleinstitute.com uh, and to, buy, to find a copy of the book, just go to the books page. And if you want to get in touch, there's contact details on the website. And uh, and it's due to be released in audio form for you audio files as well. So, Yay! Yes, people can listen to us us reading it. Uh, uh, we we read uh, chapter by chapter, which is interesting. So it's us reading it as well. So yes, we have many forms for people to uh, engage with. Even even more opportunity to uh, <laughs> witness this incredible partnership that is Dan and Kieran. Dan and Kieran, thank you for putting in the time, the effort, the energy to share with us your thinking around these 12 skills to future-proof ourselves, our teens, and our kids. Um, make sure you grab yourself a copy of the book. And um, I look forward to seeing this book hit more and more countries as the skills are definitely needed. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks so much. Lee. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.